Hi, it's Katrina Hibbert, Frog, head coach of the Flames. Make sure you tune in on Shooting the Breeze, Fridays, 4pm. Today on Shooting the Breeze, it's Maria Nordstrom, CEO of Basketball New South Wales, joining us to talk about the Women's World Cup, basketball in New South Wales, return to sport and much, much more. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. How are you? Thank you, Paul. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So, Maria, look, I'm sure um, a lot of the listeners know of you, but maybe not know you. So I'd like to start off by um, asking you about your involvement in sports administration. I don't believe that you've always been in sports administration. Prior to your role as CEO of BNSW, what were you involved in? So, yeah, no, I'm not the traditional uh, sports administrator, but I had a long history in sport. So I had a, a corporate career uh, and worked for many years uh, within Xerox. Um, and uh, in that organisation, uh, I was probably considered a bit of a change agent. I was moved into projects or um, divisions and or offices where we wanted to rebuild culture and performance. So over my uh, almost 18 years of the business, that's what I did across Australia in Melbourne, Western Australia and here in Sydney and uh, worked on uh, cultural improvement projects, etc. And then outside of Xerox, I then moved in and I was managing director for a business uh, that has a subsidiary here in Australia. Uh, and I also worked with uh, coaching and mentoring uh, across you know, a few years as well. So going back to the sport itself, I actually grew up playing basketball and played uh, in Sweden. Uh, I played for Sweden. Uh, I played National League there. And I also had the opportunity to go to college in the US before it was fashionable to go to college really. <laughs> played NCAA in a in a university that uh, was just started to I guess dip its toe in playing in Division One and uh, and had the experience of having done that as well and then I uh, came back to Sweden and moved to Australia and I played in the Victorian civil system and played uh, I guess the in the structure in Victoria for about six or seven years and then my corporate career took over so I was out of it so from an administrator's perspective. No, but very familiar with the sport and, and structure around sport. And I think some sports have kind of gone outside of traditional sports administrators to recruit uh, and others, you know, so depending, I think, on, on on where everybody's at and the candidates you have available but and their experience with the sport as well. For basketball, New South Wales at the time, I think, wanted someone from the outside of, uh, of uh, New South Wales to assist making and driving some change in the business here and also looking at how we improved, I guess, our um, relationship with our members uh, and also understanding what those member challenges were. Okay. It's been three and a half years <laughs> wow. since that happened. Quite an interesting background, particularly your background in playing basketball. I'm not sure how many people are really aware of that, but also coupling that with experience, particularly in culture change in corporates, which is a very time-consuming and very complex thing to achieve. That's one of those things that really stands well with sports and the way you know sports is somewhat balkanised and fractured in some respects in Australia. Um, yep. It's a really good skill set to be able to help bridge all those those gaps and be able to bring everybody together to support an outcome. Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously a, a challenging 
you know, uh, it is challenging with sport because it is an ecosystem, as you said, that is quite fractured. It's quite linear. Uh, it is a peer-to-peer relationship in a federated model, and uh, and the federated model has a codependency from you know the from the NSO, the national sport organisation, through to the state sports organisation, through to the lo- local association, and then club to the individual member. And that kind of relationship, I think, you know, is not necessarily always visible in sport. And I think one thing that we have, an, I think, an opportunity to work on is actually how we make that more symbiotic and also how we make that more uh, working to the benefit of our participants and our clubs and, and make that whole uh, business structure work a little bit differently. But it's, yeah. It's an interesting time, and I think COVID has brought a lot of that to the surface. Uh, I think the traditional, you know, sporting environment is is a bit of friction between each layer, and I think that it doesn't matter if it's in basketball or any other sport. I think there is a level of friction between the layers, uh, uh, you know, uh, no matter where you go. But I think we have an opportunity to start thinking about what a model for the future would look like to create that symbiotic value to, you know, I I think I said this and people that know me say I talk about little Johnny a lot, uh, that I think little Johnny, you know, who's participating in sport or little, you know, or little Heather that is going to participate in basketball what is the value that we provide them and what is that symbiotic relationship between the, the state sport organisation and, and the actual local uh, deliverer of the sport, which are our associations or clubs? How do we make that work so it is a symbiotic, value-based you know, system where we, where we actually focus on, on providing value for the participants and also how and then that allow us in turn to grow the sport and provide uh, a, you know a, 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 an environment that people want to be part of. Yeah, but it's not easy. No, no, <laughs> I, I know. I can see that. Um, and obviously, the yeah. current situation with with COVID will have made some of those some of these issues a lot bigger that you need to deal with. Now that mm-hmm. things are starting to ramp up, there are obviously a bunch of challenges for you as a sports administrator and for Basketball New South Wales as we try to get competitions back up and running. How are you approaching that and what are the plans for our state-based competitions here in New South Wales? Good question. So uh, we, we took an, an approach when we when the shutdown first happened. We, we realised that we needed to stay in contact with our member uh, clubs and associations. We wanted to also ensure that the message came from one source in providing information back to our members. So we started working with a framework back in the middle of March, uh, which was just as everything very dramatically happened on the Friday the 13th of, the, of uh, March. And I think we, we, we closed our competitions on that Saturday morning. And, you know, like everything else, uh, you know, that was a, a learning. Uh, we were hoping the messaging would have been probably a little bit clearer, but that uh, our core group here at DNSW formed a, uh, I guess, a crisis management initially, uh, and then a restart mobilisation group as we went into the later phase of it. And our main aim was in that first two or three weeks was to really di- basically dissect and also. Uh, share information through one source. So we worked on a 24-hour cycle and worked through our um, information from federal government, from state government, from Basketball Australia, from Office of Sport here, Sport New South Wales and ourselves to ensure that people 
were given the message and also then that the messages was got, got had a framework around it so people kind of got an understanding of context. And because everything moved so first in those first three weeks, uh, it went very quickly. But because we decided to work in that fashion, we, we uh, I think, provided a lot of information to our clubs and associations very quickly. We set up a COVID page, which basically on our website, which kind of gave information to our members, but it was saying, at the moment, we are in suspension and we will provide further information when we know more. Because the biggest challenge we have had up until yesterday is we had really no knowledge on when we were going to restart. We had an idea, but we didn't know. And as a part of this phase, then we went through the crisis phase, which probably lasted for about three weeks for us. Uh, and then out of that, we then move into what we call business continuity phase. And in that business continuity phase, we obviously work through a lot of our, what we call scenario planning. And that was to look at what does our competitions look like? What are any of our programs look like? When will we think that the, the stadiums will be able to open? And what would that look like if they're starting programs and local competitions, etc.? So we started to kind of form a view. We had to recut, obviously, our budgets. We had to really look at our cash flow forecast and really look at worst case scenario versus a number of different scenarios. So that took up a best part of probably six to seven weeks. And then uh, we then started landing on some dates that we thought would be feasible based on the interaction that I have and some of the people in this office have with government. But the government weren't willing to commit to anything. We were still in our, really in our in uncharted waters in regards to really keeping the virus under control and therefore weren't willing to commit to any particular date. Up until two weeks ago, we had really kept very quiet about when we wanted to start and we started to share with our association some ideas, not as a proposal as to what we wanted to do with our programs moving forward and potential start dates. That then has been uh, run through a couple of consultation phases with the delegates from our clubs and associations, primarily associations, and we're currently in that final phase at the moment and then getting a start date from the government finally of 1st of July has allowed us to then say, okay, now we the line in the sand that we've drawn and the planning that we've done, we can now start putting a lot more detail around it. And we, um, we're having some more consultation with our associations over the next couple of days. And we're hoping we have a calendar that will be released by uh, end of next week. And that will mean the public will understand then where we're going what that calendar will look like at the back end of the year. And then also, but with that, we'll have a better understanding of any biosafety layers that the government will ask us to put into the stadium uh, to ensure uh, that we minimise any risk of the virus having transmission or local transmission. So it's not an easy process, but it is with, with the, the scenario planning has taken us through many, many reiterations with the competitions team. So that is basically, from the competition side, our high performance side has been working in a modified fashion since late March. So we decided with the over 650 kids that are running through and are participating in our high performance program, our state state performance program, our developing athlete program that traditionally runs and finishes at the end of June. We modified it and moved it online at the end of March. They've been running with those kids uh, in weekly uh, sessions uh, in the groups of 10. 
and they have a structured framework and they're working whatever environment they're in at home and they have certain skills that they work through and they, you know, that they generally do in the program. Obviously, they can't do the on court or they can't actually do uh, any more than the working individual skills, but they've done that basically since the last week of March. And I think that has been very well received by the parents. Our performance program now finishes as this term finishes and we have a bit of a gap for a couple of months and then we go through trials to take those uh, those uh, programs forward, forward for 2021. How's that remote training been working for, for the high-performance team? So uh, the feedback has been very positive from the parents and there, there were a couple of things. We said oh, we, we had options. We continue and we have to modify or we cancel and one of the things that we sought feedback from parents on was that, you know, would they be willing for the kids to participate? So we did speak to the parents. Were they participate? Were they comfortable for the kids to work in an environment where they were, you know, they could be in the lounge room, they could be in a driveway, they could be in a garage. Some of them have access to baskets or backstops and some weren't, as long as they had access to a basketball. So the program was involving the parents uh, and from day one. They were also really uh, set up so that they, had to follow it as if it, as it is a normal serious training session uh, and that involved uh, obviously uh, respecting each other uh, and working for that 40 minutes on the on and focus with a coach providing you know obviously the guidance and feedback on the various activities that we're doing so we've had those kids and the feedback has been really positive to the point where one of so the RSVP program was meant to finish at the end of June. So that's obviously still running. Our developing athlete program was meant to finish uh, in the first uh, week of May and we had quite a lot of inquiries uh, and they're run in Metro. The developing athlete program is run by the regional academies in regional New South Wales, so their schedule is slightly different. Uh, but in Metro, we do run those uh, that program ourselves with various coaches. So they, the parents in that core group ask for that to continue to the end of term. So we've worked that out for that to continue for now. So that the kids obviously had that outlet. And while the kids were all at home doing home study, you know, that provided them something to look forward to at the end of the day when they've been sitting around their desk in a room or that kitchen table, you know, doing their schoolwork, uh, to actually having a session to look forward to at the end of the day. That's been very positively received. And I know a lot of our association or quite a few of our associations has picked up on that and done that. So I'm with the local comp- local uh, competition players and have provided opportunities for people, kids to do it and others have done it with their representative teams as well. That's great. So I think that has worked really well and uh, we obviously signed up a partnership with one of our network coaches up in Lithgow who's been doing this for kids anywhere in the state or anywhere in the region really that want to participate in programs as well. Just skills-based program something to keep them focused and active because the biggest concern was, you know, around for us was around how do we keep kids active, not because of basketball, but more the fact that they were active and something positive to look forward to and, and feeling that, you know, they were not sitting isolated at home and not having any activity at all to look forward to. So that was part of what we want to do. And we know a lot of sectors obviously have done this in a variety of ways, but this was our way of doing it. And I think that's been quite well received. And we've tried to share some of those stories on our social media from our clubs and associations and and certainly also uh, the Home Court Challenge with those videos that allowed the kids to interact in teams or groups uh, and create video content to music uh, on TikTok and also on Instagram. And I think that is also something that has been quite well received because the kids were interacting in a way to do something while they were still, you know, in isolation and couldn't actually, you know, go and play anywhere. 
it's good to see that basketball's embraced these these new approaches. I'm guessing that a lot of this forward thinking helped us, us being New South Wales, um, mm-hmm. secure the the 2022 Women's World Cup, which is one of the biggest pieces of news that's come out in basketball this year that I can remember. Can you give us a, a little bit of background on how the planning for this came to be and what's the involvement of BNSW and also, what sort of support did you get from our state and federal governments in to assist in getting the, getting the World Cup mm. here? It's very exciting that we have been awarded this. Obviously, Basketball Australia is the direct kind of or, or conduit into FIBA. Just to your question about how do we, you know, start this journey. So uh, in 2018, actually, when I first started in uh, 2017, we were looking to develop our strategic plan. And as a part of that, we, you know, we were looking for, I guess, levers to elevate the sport to, if you go as business as usual and just look at organic growth, no matter how well you organise it, obviously you can only grow so much. To our my point earlier is how do you look at the business model and how do you make sure that you maximise the opportunity and value for everybody? This was one of those areas that we felt that we could uh, make a difference by uh, having a major event in New South Wales, specifically around women. Uh, we have a premier that was also very... I guess, a program in place to generate 10 World Cups in 10 years, had a very strong focus on women. We looked at the strategic plan of attracting a major event and with Bob Alfingston, who was my chair at the time here at Basketball New South Wales, I said, well, this is one of the things we want to do. Uh, I would suggest the Women's World Cup is probably not going to be achievable because that was already awarded to uh, the, the Philippines Japan and uh, one more country, Malaysia, I think it is. So three countries in Asia, and that's already been awarded uh, for 2023. So then we have to look at basically 2027, and that's far away. So if we're looking at something in the shorter term, aligned to the government goal here, it will be the FIBA Women's World Cup in 2022. So on the back of that, uh, obviously spoke to... uh, uh, David Reed from uh, from Basketball Australia is one of the directors on the BA board. Uh, he's from New South Wales, and David and I went to Tenerife in 2018 to look at the Women's World Cup and look at uh, where the game was at, the deliverables, etc., and also ascertaining Phoebus, I guess, the willingness to consider Australia as a host for, for their World Cup. On the back of that, uh, obviously came back and we lobbied government for the best part of 18 months to support this event and the funding will uh, be brought forward for the event uh, as part of this as well. In uh, 20, uh, basically 12 months ago, we submitted the initial expression of interest to FIBA that we were going to bid for this. Part of that obviously was then a bid team with Basketball Australia, Basketball New South Wales and a few other stakeholders was brought into the bid team with an external firm that worked with us to put the whole structure of the bid together, which was finalised in February this year. So it was quite a long journey uh, and quite a, a lot of that work was done quite late in the year. As a part of that, we then had a delegation visit uh, for us to present our, our bid and also the location and the value add about what the World Cup could bring to obviously FIBA and the broader community around the world of basketball. Then the final presentation was done via video link in the end because we were meant to go to Geneva to do the final pitch. But uh, we did it, uh, and I have to say one thing that we are, we are resourceful. 
So we had Bob and myself here in Sydney, Gerald Rechter, who is the CEO of Basketball Australia, and Ned Cochin, who's the chair of Basketball Australia in Melbourne. And we presented our final pitch to FIBA via video link into Geneva and from Geneva out to, I think, 52 countries. Wow, so, uh, and that was for us to basically do our final pitch and for them to then vote to award it. And it been really a bit surreal in a lot of ways because you're sitting in a room uh, in Glebe presenting, uh, waiting for them to do the final vote uh, after the, the there was a shortlist and after the other presentation has been had been done. We then were notified to go back online and they then announced it. To then having a glass of champagne and then going home at about 12.30 in the morning <laughs> without gonna, being able to celebrate. But it's I was a great say event that, and a big journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say there must have been a, a glass of wine or a glass of bubbly at the end of that whole process. So it's been a really good, I think, learning experience for us. Uh, and I think, you know, the big team went really well and then worked really well together. And I talked about, you know, the hierarchy of basketball and sport and, the, you know, there's always a bit of tension at each layer. But I think in this instance, we worked very well together for a purpose and an outcome that we wanted to achieve to become the host of the FIBA Women's World Cup in 2022. So out of that now has been a local organising committee that has been formed. And David Reed is the chair of the local organising committee here. It is a separate organisation. We have representation on the board, so, and we'll have, uh, and I'll be on the board of that. Um, and I, I'm very grateful for that, being having been part of the journey to get us to where we are. And I guess very grateful for the board of BNSW for that to happen as well. So, And we have, uh, obviously, uh, some external directors that we bring in as well, really looking to leverage you know, some external expertise, especially in the commercial uh, area, which is obviously very crucial for this to be successful. What I think is probably the most exciting part of this is the potential impact and benefit that the Women's World Cup will have on local basketball uh, and specifically fan participation rates uh, with the WNBL, which and I'm sure this will help raise the WNBL profile within the country. Obviously, the Sydney Uni Flames specifically. How do you think that's all going to work out for those stakeholders? Yeah, so it, I mean, it's a multi-layered question. I think Gerald West has added a lot of value and the new thinking to Basketball Australia. And I think in that, you know, they're making some, some changes to the WNBL. It's more around actually lifting profile, marketing, and, 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 and working on profiling the girls that are playing in the league in a, in a way that they're elevated to, to be known faces. And I think that whole marketing uh, story uh, will evolve over the next couple of years and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that happening. And I think with the female Women's World Cup, the opportunity here is that we have, first of all, the government have really, the New South Wales government has been very clear they want to have and create a legacy for basketball here in New South Wales. So we'll be working on a legacy program at a local level and at a state level and we'll link that to the um, her sport, her way, is basically the women's uh, and, and girls' strategy for sport in New South Wales. So coupled to that, Basketball Australia has a iterative process where a lot of different stakeholders across the WBL clubs, state organisations, academics, uh, participants, players, ex-players, I mean, participating in a big process, a large process, to build a women in sport strategy for basketball. 
And I think this allows that strategy as well to, to be kind of started and start working on that. So for us, it's a legacy at our level is that women in sports strategy more at the national level. For us, it's actually having government's endorsement to, to actually have legacy in New South Wales that will help us here. But it also build on the fan engagement with women, with families who want to be, you know, and to have more visibility and more access to the sport. But I think the biggest thing is that we're creating a different level of awareness around the sport and, and awareness and the promotion around the sport so we can create that fan base that you talked about. And I think the unique opportunity with the Women's World Cup is the fact that it will be held in one location. Creating a one-location hub allows for a number of different activations. So Kudos Bank Arena is the main venue with a key centre as the second venue with all the teams being based in Olympic Park, we hope. There's no someone, but the intent is for the whole village to be in Olympic Park. And outside of that, you can create a lot of other activations with schools, with clubs. You can have three-on-three. Three. You can have a number of different things that you can do to create that hub and environment that people feel that they're part of it, the whole story of the World Cup. And that's what we're kind of looking forward to creating and, uh, and, and building something unique. For the Flames, obviously New South Wales' only WNBL team, do you think that trying to promote the club as a whole and also the players that are representing the club in this environment is going to help our local participation with WNBL? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I, I do believe that it has. I think there's also an opportunity to create a ripple at a local level as a part of these legacy programs. The legacy programs won't have to post the event. The legacy will start soon. And once you start building those, you know, engagement with girls that are connected to the storytelling and the stories about how the girls that are playing with the Flames became a Flame. That's how you try to connect that DNA connection between you know, the young girls that are coming through to the elite players. And when you start to being able to show those stories and, sh- and actually promote that across the local basketball community and link that back to the World Cup and the WNBL, I think, yes, absolutely, we'll lose participation. The other big piece of news that came out at around the same time as the announcement for the Women's World Cup was that the Flames and the Kings were going to be a merged organisation. Now, Mm-hmm. Do you think that the, this merger will actually assist basketball generally grow in the state and specifically assist women's basketball grow? Uh, I, I do think that Paul Smith and, and you know and uh, and his business has obviously um, uh, been very determined uh, to build a much stronger fan base around the King. The Kings and certainly worked very, very tirelessly in the last 12 months since the, he became a majority, obviously, shareholder around the Kings and certainly had a very different engagement with the community and that was seen in spectator numbers throughout last year, which unfortunately obviously had to end a bit early uh, with COVID. But I think it goes to show that that is possible. I think, you know, to having uh, the Flames linked to that as well or being part of that so they're sitting under the same ownership structure I think is a positive outcome and and I think it provides a broader opportunity to cross markets and it also provides the opportunities of playing to may, maybe play more double headers in Kidos Bank Arena to lift the profile and also certainly uh, you know and while still having it, their own home arena but allows for more double headers that allows lifting profile through the league and through the team and the local press here 
So it's about visibility, and through that, you obviously have the uh, the the storytelling and the actual profile of the girls being lifted at the same time. So I think it's positive, and I think you know that they really have an intent on 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 making basketball successful in New South Wales. So from that perspective, we all kind of want to drive to grow the sport and making it more visible and certainly have more participation and for these teams to be successful on the national scale. I'm actually really hopeful that the success of the doubleheaders will also translate to larger crowds coming to Brighton Stadium to watch the Flames play there. Absolutely, because you say it's about creating a bigger fan base, once you build visibility and awareness, absolutely. People say, well, can I just go to Brighton? So I, don't, I just don't watch it when it's here. I can go to Brighton and watch it as well. So, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Hopefully that will also increase the profile of the WNBL across the school communities because, um, obviously, a lot of kids go to watch the Kings. I, uh, I've yep. certainly seen during the during some of the doubleheaders a lot of families there. So hopefully that will help to increase that the, the participation from the school level, which will increase mm. the fan base for the Flames, uh, that's going to be able to, to help take off? Um, I, I, I think, you know, the, the school engagement is critical to, to growth of, of to growth of community sports. I guess that's where you get your little fans from, right? They, they, they go back to the little Johnny who goes to school at Conrad Park and he loves basketball, but if he doesn't have any attachment to the elite teams, it's only about what he does with his little team on a Tuesday night. Unless you create that DNA connection, there, so it makes that team more visible and more accessible, and for those elite players to be something that they can aspire to. I mean, I actually have a, 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 an example of you know uh, one of my colleagues who actually heads up one of the other sports in this, was gone in the biggest sport in this stage. His youngest son is a very much a keen basketballer. We came to the games at the Kings with me a number of times, and and what makes him excited is the fact that he can play. And the fact that he can have play with his mate, but the fact that he goes to the stadium and he can see big boys play or the elite players play, then he has something to aspire to. And the more connected those elite players are to, to these little Johnnies, the more excited they're going to be to come to the game because they'll bring the parents and the families get excited and they feel that they're really enjoying this as a family sport. And that's what allows it to grow. And I think you can, we can do the same thing with the girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I know that some of the uh, the Flames players over the last couple of years um, have gone to, to quite a number of schools, and I know s- certainly from one that I'm aware of, the response not only from the kids but also from the staff at the school was a lot of excitement at having players who are playing on the national stage and in some cases the international stage show up at the school and inspire you know, staff and students. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's exciting, right? These are elite athletes at the end of the day. And Opal, you know, a very successful international team. The WNBA is a very high-quality league. And these people coming to meet kids at schools is a big thing. So I think, you know, we are sporting schools program, which is the uh, Sport Australia-funded school program, um, and has grown uh, from about twelve to 13,000 but uh, like participant that went through our school program to almost thirty one thousand in the in the last twelve months in, in the twenty nineteen. And what we do is that we obviously have a number of network coaches through the associations that that go and see these kids. But what we wanted to add to that is actually have these elite players coming out. They can do their own programs, and that's perfectly fine. But also to interlink it to the group because if you have over three hundred programs in schools every year. 
you want to connect all of those kids in some way with that elite that elite level too. So it's like, you know, you have local staff and local flames, if you like, so you have aspiring, you know, role models. Uh, and the more you do that, the better it is. And that's why I think one of the good things that netball has done is to create that environment where they're connecting, you know, the um, the Swifts and the GWS Giants girls with that local community of netball girls that are playing and then making them quite accessible for them to, um, to actually see and touch in the way that they actually understand, I can actually aspire to be, you know, a Swifts player. And I think that's what we need to do really well. Uh, and I think, you know, going out to do things in a structured way. It's really important to get those gra- that grassroots going because one of the things I remember from from basketball back in the 90s when you know the Kings and the Flames were at the entertainment centre, there was always a lot of engagement with, with kids. There was always a lot of kids at the games. And I think that disappeared for a while. And I think, obviously, the, the fortunes of basketball went with that a little bit. But it seems to be ramping up again now. So hopefully that's going to translate to greater engagement and greater success for the sport. I, I agree, and I, that's been noticeably been a, a big difference. I think in the last in the, in the last uh, you know a couple of years, uh, seeing more engagement with kids, and there with the kids obviously come families. There are sometimes schools and school classes or groups of kids that are engaged in the sport through a school, but certainly more and more families. And one thing that I reflected on after, especially after this last season, is there are so many families that go to the games. And if you go to the Flames game, you're seeing a lot more of that as well. But the more we promote through the schools and make the sport more visible through the schools, uh, the more opportunity for engagement very true maria mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time today um, thank you really it's been a pleasure been, it's been yeah. great having you on the show and uh love to be able to check in with you in the future to see how things are progressing with the women's world cup no problem at all that'd be my pleasure thank, thank you, you paul thanks very much for your time maria <laughs>